Welcome to Close Reads here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Sanford and Tim McIntosh. How's it going, guys? We're ready to rumble. <laughs> I love the fanfare, David. Yeah, that's what that you of... sound like. You love it. I love the fanfare. I love David. the fanfare, David. It is so meaningful. I can see those acting classes have yeah. come in handy. <laughs> well, he's you're, just... you're really emoting right now, Tim. He's he is he's actually doing a role. He's in character. Forrest Tim, Forrest McIntosh. Yeah, for um, yeah. for boring robot character. That's what he's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boring so... robot character number one. <laughs> Run, Tim, run. So, Tim, you're in you're in Iowa City, Iowa at the moment in your in the Great Tim Adventure that of 2017. Sounds fake. That sounds fake. <laughs> it's really true. And David, you said off the air that this is where Marilyn Robinson lives. Well, I assume so. That's where the University of Iowa is. So you're is... you're stalking her now? So I'm just gonna pay her an uninvited visit. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You're gonna just barge into her office and be like, Hey, I'm Tim McIntosh. And just look you at probably her. know me from close reads. <laughs> you might know me from such from such shows as. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure she's got Google set up to automatically alert her anytime someone's talking about her anywhere. Yeah, I bet Wendell Berry so. does the same thing. Oh, Wendell yeah. Berry's cell phone is constantly going off of notifications for. Wendell know. Berry has someone who drives in from town, <laughs> out of town, and prints out the Goodreads yeah. reviews yeah. and hands uh-huh, it to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> So Lori from Kansas City had a problem with how you ended Nathan Coulter in 1977. Then he goes outside, goes out to his writing workshop and tries to figure out how to fix Lori's problems. Gosh, that, doesn't that sound like just some fine bit of hell? Doesn't that just sound awful? No, he like lines up bottles and he throws rocks at him because now he's mad at Lori. Oh, Who does man. she think she is? Yeah, he gets his twenty-two out and he puts old Coke, bo- Coke glass Coke bottles on a fence and he writes the word Lori on the cross the label. Yeah. But we are getting carried. This scene is just taking a life of its own. The three of us need to write a one-act play. Just, just see where it goes. No rules. <laughs> well, speaking of no rules, we are here to talk about Murder on the Orient Express, the Agatha Christie novel. This is episode two of our Murder on the Orient Express uh, conversation, and it's something pretty funny happened. So. There is another uh, Christian book podcast out there. Not not books by Christians, but there's another group of Christians who are doing a podcast on books called The Bookening. I don't know if you guys know them. No. And they, they follow us on Twitter, and we follow them and so forth. So when I posted on Twitter that we were talking about this book, they said something like, come on now, there's already a Christian podcast that's, that's, um, that's talked about this book. And they have, and it's pretty good. So you go listen, listen to the bookendings conversation on this book as well if you want to um, have some more. If you can't get enough Murder on the Orient Express. Um, but then, and then I responded with something like, what is this one of those, this town ain't big enough for the both of us situations? <laughs> and then somebody else is on Twitter posted a, a gif of like somebody like eating popcorn really fast. <laughs> So apparently this is like, I think this is, this is turning into like the, the Christian literature podcast skirmishes or something like that. Loser leaves town. Uh, no. How long ago did they do it, David? Uh, you know, I can't remember how many weeks they did. Um, I don't, they don't like, they, they kept every time we'd post about Gilead, they'd be like another episode on Gilead. Oh, (laughs) that book is just so reading closely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said. They were like, that book is just so Gilead-y. 
That is true. It is true. It's it very is, Gilead-y. It is Gilead-y. So anyway, um, yeah, check them out if you want to hear uh, another uh, interesting conversation about this book. I feel like I need to get a Twitter account just so I can go comment on this. Cause... Well, I'm a kind of embarrassed that you don't already have one. How are you going to get How are you going to get Karis famous if you don't have a Twitter account? I know. Or an Instagram. I'm in trouble. Her, her daughter always says that like you're not real famous because you don't have an Instagram page. Yes, according to her, according to my 12-year-old daughter, the definition of fame is 5 million Instagram followers. And so she really? burst she burst my bubble so bad the other day when she said, "Mom, Wendell Berry is not famous. He doesn't have any Instagram followers." <laughs> and part of my soul died right in that moment. <laughs> Parenting failure. Uh, she was telling me this morning that um that Kara someone came up to her and talked to her about close foods or whatever, and she was like, "Mom, you're not real famous. You don't have an a lot of Instagram followers. That's right. Close Reads Famous isn't Instagram Instagram famous. That's right. Which is true. It's totally true. <laughs> We're fine with that. I don't think there's any possible way I could get 5 million Instagram followers. Yeah, probably not. Even if I did something crazy like, I'm going to swallow a sword or <laughs> one of those crazy YouTube videos where people get wow, killed. you went there. I don't know. I just think of the crazy, you know, never mind. Back to books. So, Tim, where... This where's... is why I don't have an Instagram. <laughs> Where is next? So Iowa City on to Chicago. Chicago tomorrow. What's in Chicago? Well, I am going to see a couple of theaters, hopefully meet with a couple of artistic directors. And I actually have a writing client, a fairly large college in Chicago. I probably should like not mention their name. And I'm doing some research and interviews. The University of Chicago? Yeah. Have you heard of them? <laughs> no, not the University of Chicago. The Chicago Manual of Style. You you working for them? You're, you're there. You're the editor of the editors. Oh gosh, no! They don't want that. They want to stay. Can in imagine the hey, I was job. just thinking. Like, can you imagine? We're, we're all groaning. Our listeners, like, what are you talking about? Just imagine being the copy editor of the Chicago Manual of Style. Oh my, oh, my goodness. goodness! Oh my goodness! Like you, you get hired, you're like, you're like, oh, I know all about this. All I know, I know all the copy editing manuals, and then you start editing them, and like your boss comes, and like, why are you making all these changes? And you pull out your MLA. <laughs> You're like, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. It's been nice to know. We're never going to get the Chicago manual style. As a We're never going to get show. this episode either. <laughs> this is never going to happen. Okay. I do have one question for you guys. It's that's at least in the suburbs yep. of uh, Close Reads. You guys suburbs. have taught, you've taught writing classes before. Do you, I have Only had this when forced since, to since at I gunpoint. started writing, since I started teaching writing, that when people think of writing, they think... Um, I take a writing class so I can learn where to put the commas, what should be italicized and what should be put in quotes, you know, is that I, what people are doing? I no, I think that's kind of the default position that, I think that's what people think writing is. And I just want to say from the get go, man, I am not terribly good at any of that stuff. I mean, I, I've learned how to do it, but I am, I mean, sometimes I'm still like, man, I don't know if a comma goes there or not. Well, I used to be an editor at a publishing house, so I do know where the stinking commas go. Let yeah. me tell you. And I was, I was like having PTSD talking about the Chicago Manual style because immediately I'm like, which edition? Because that's always my follow-up question. Which edition do you follow? <laughs> um, yeah, because that's how nerdy I am. But yes, yeah. so it's awful. And editing and writing is not the same thing. Yeah, because yeah, let me, really let me tell you what, boy, what took the shine off of that for me was actually being an editor at a publishing house and getting manuscripts. And you're like, 
this guy can tell a story, but I'm not really sure he's literate. Yeah. <laughs> Is the English language his first language? You know, and then I got to get in there and I got I to gotta make it be American. Yeah. <laughs> American's not a language, you know. <laughs> American is a language. <laughs> um, well, some of the characters in the Murder on the Orient Express might beg to differ. Oh my gosh, a vera, vera. I love, kinder, it. I love kinder. it. Kinder, vera. Um, I'm very scared. So we we need to just take care of a little bit of business here before we dive into the show, because as you might recall, we have something we're giving away. Oh so yes, we how had many a, people answered it right? Um. Oh, I'm sorry, I asked a question. It's, lo- it's, it's, it's loading. It's loading. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to reload the page to make sure that we get the final count. Um, <laughs> so, so um, I, last can, I checked, we literally have an hourglass spinning last, on the page right now. Yeah, no, I do. La- okay, here we go. Last I checked, there were like, oh man, like forty something correct answers. Ooh, nice job, um, close readers. So. Though the poll was, which Edgar Allan Poe story is considered the first detective story? Angelina, you know the answer to this. But first, Tim, do you know the answer to this? Would you like I, the options that we gave people? I would oh, love wait, the options. Oh, wait, it was multiple choice? Oh, that's not even fair. Well, we, you know, it's easier to, to do it this way. You should have me make the multiple choice. I could have made them, well, like, so terrible. I will. Hard. Well, we just chose from his stories. Oh, okay, okay. And then I, I voted the first vote, and I purposely voted the wrong one to lead people astray. Ooh, David, that's devilish. Um, So the option, okay, which Edgar Allan Poe story is considered the first detective story? And here are the options that you have. The Telltale Heart. The Murders the eye, the eye. in the Rue Morgue. The Pit and the Pendulum. The Gold Bug or the Black Hat. Whew, I would guess the Gold Bug, but I do not know. And you would be wrong. <laughs> the correct answer is. I hope we are. I hope you and I are on the same page. Ooh, on this the murders on the Rue Morgue. Yep, it is the murder. And talk about a plot twist. Should I? Not, I won't spoil it. Go go ahead. It's like seven hundred years old. Not it's really. like a it's gorilla, I, right? It's not even a person. Yeah, it's and it's so it was the first time that a detective like you literally could have made anything up, and like ninety nine percent of the listeners out there be like. It's an alien? It was a robot. <laughs> so then it was a robot that killed everybody. It was the first story where a detective, where it set up the idea of a detective who logically kind of follows the clues and then, you know, using reason solves the crime. Like the precursor to Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. And I feel like my Lord world is crumbling. Peter. That means an American invented the detective story. This is true. It's 1841 or something like that, too. So, okay, Tim, yes, I need sir. you then. I need you to... to, to Choose a number between one and forty-four. Okay, so take your twelve-sided die out. <laughs> so between the number one and the number forty-four. Well, there's only two possible answers. One of them is Michael Jordan's number twenty-three, <laughs> and one of them is my dad's college number thirty-two. I'm going to choose randomly between those two and choose Michael Jordan's number twenty-three is the number. Okay. So you so, love Michael Jordan more than your dad? Mm, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but one of them was better at basketball. <laughs> one of them was slightly better at basketball. Oh, yeah. I just said slightly. I didn't, I didn't mean <laughs> to imply anything. Um, the winner is, drum roll, please. Angelina's doing a drum roll with pens on the desk. The winner is Kim Pyle. So congratulations, Ooh. Kim. You won a copy of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. So congratulations. Is she not going to hear this has... until we um, post this close reads? 
It was, so it'll go up on Friday. I mean, we could always, I mean, I'll email her and tell her. But Yeah, yeah. No, if you don't listen, you don't win. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, I'll just email her and tell her to listen. I feel like somewhere Matt Bianco is crying because we've gone 40 minutes of banter. But <laughs> Matt doesn't listen. Because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like the banter. So, okay, let's, let's, let's dive in then. Let's, let's skip the rest of the banter that we had, that we had planned, right? But the All banter the- is so much better than my discussion of the book. <laughs> so we, again, it, we're Murder on the Orient Express Part 2. Um, and Tim, have you been following in, uh, as you travel across the country, any of the conversation on the close reads Facebook group, uh, about this book? A little bit, but not much. I feel like I'm out of everything. So what's happening? So, oh, well, so much, we want to build some of this conversation for today around some comments. Oh yeah. I'm, I've got my that... phone right here for, for work purposes. <laughs> Angelina did some quote research by reading the Facebook page, by reading people's Facebook comments and people have some, some amazing things that I think will lead to some really interesting conversations. We have so, the serious best listeners. They're like pulling out chapter and verse. They're researching this stuff. So, so let me hear, hold on. What's, what's, tell me what the idea is, David. Yeah, so Angelina, I'm going to let An- Angelina present is Laura's, right? This is, yeah, this is Laura Lucht, longtime listener and mm-hmm. poster on mm-hmm. our Close Reads page. So she picked up on this idea of, you know, that detective stories is, it, they're bigger. They're making a bigger comment than just the, the, the entertainment story, right? So she starts uh, researching every geographical location that's named all the countries where the characters are from. And she starts pulling together this whole post-World War One nationalism and Ooh. that each of the, each of the, so Yugoslavia being stopped, a murder happening in Yugoslavia, that's an echo of the murder of Sarajevo that Ooh. sets off World War One, right? Like good stuff. Everyone should just go join the Facebook page right now and read her whole comment. So, so each of the each of the places are actually very significant in terms of the war. And so, to, just to sum up, you're getting the sense of the frailty of the peace and a frail stability, a very frail post-war stability in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. So Syria being so Aleppo is mentioned. That's a big one. Um, Constantinople, Smyrna. You've got all these locations. And so even the, the train passengers themselves are almost the players in the war, the oh, countries that are yeah, in the war. Yeah, it's yeah. Like they're all represented. Um, and so it seems like you've got a lot of other things going on. Even the, the Orient Express itself was, a, was an emblem of, of trying to rebuild after the war and pulling it all together yeah. and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> Yeah, lots, lots, just amazing research and comments here about uh, just the frailty of all of it. And and particularly, we talked in the first episode about the question of what is justice and and how are you supposed to feel when it's a bad guy that dies. And and so she pulls that even into the the war context of you've got so many things happening, ethnic cleansings and countries at war, and it becomes extremely difficult to know what is just Mm -hmm. in these situations Mm -hmm. and who is the victim and who is the perpetrator. And and that's all really blurry. So you've got a lot of things going on. So post-war instability, uh, the rise of ethnic nationalism, which you definitely see her playing with this in this book, right? Like, if you didn't know that she's making a comment about ethnic nationalism, it looks like she's playing stereotypes really hard. Like, it's bad writing almost. Oh, the Italian, he's passionate, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or the American, sweet but not so smart, (laughs) which is spot on. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 the, uh, there certainly is the the suspicion in the characters, right? 
Yes. Does it feel to you like they play that up a little too much sometimes, though? Like that they play up their suspicions of other people to a degree that is probably like to to try to cast, you know, suspicion on other people on the train. They they and kind of steered away from themselves. They rely on on stereotypes and um, things like that to try to just draw the attention elsewhere. Well, I. I think she's I again I think she's deliberately drawing attention to the form, and so I, I thought I just I highlighted several lines where they seem to be playing on that, and he Hercule Poirot could almost predict who was going to be and who wasn't going to be, and it can't be the Italian. It's too obvious, and this is not a passionate crime. It's too obviously pointing to him, so it can't be him. Which that's what we've talked about. That's the whole that's the whole plot, and of, of that's the form of a detective story, and he keeps. Our, our detective keeps pointing out the form of the detective novel, right? Oh, no, there's too many coincidences. Oh, no, it can't be her because we expect it to be her. Uh, and, and just all these kinds of things. But one more thing I wanted to add about this idea that we're getting a cross-section of the, the countries of World War One. Again, Laura pointed this out on the Facebook page, was that line in the first section when uh, Hercule Poirot is told that the Orient Express is full, he responds, all the world has decided to travel tonight. Huh. Huh. So she seems to be I think I think what we're seeing happen is that she's drawing attention to the form, but she's also drawing attention to the themes and they're all going together. So Tim, do you do you buy this idea that she's creating an <laughs> allegory of World War 1? <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I may be primed for this because the other book the other book that I've been listening to while I've been traveling in addition to Murder on the Orient Express is a delightful book called Dead Wake. Uh, do you guys oh, know yeah. Dead oh, Wake? Yeah. It's about yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. <clears throat> by uh, I, Eric Larson. Yeah, the Lusitania so one. The Sinking of the Lusitania. Yeah. Yes, it, please you, tell me if it's good because that's on my library list. Eric Larson is amazing. His books are always good. amazing. This good is a five-star book. I, I don't know how the book could be any better. It's just, it's all, so people who don't know the story of the Lusitania, it's, one of the fastest and biggest pre-World War I ocean liners, um, passenger liners. And as it was nearing the Irish, gosh, the, as it was nearing Ireland on its way to Liverpool, it was gunned down by U-20, a German U-boat. And the United States, so many, many Americans were killed and the United States was not in the war. Woodrow Wilson had run on a peace platform. Uh, he did not want to enter World War I, but the Lusitania basically was kind of the, the event that got the U.S. in the war, even though um, it took another couple of years. The Lusitania was basically the event. What's really interesting, this is just so interesting, and then we can get back to the book. It really looks like Winston Churchill, who was for a time the head of her Majesty's Navy, it really looks like Winston Churchill might have set up the scene so that U-20 would have basically open, unguarded waters and have a chance to sink the Lusitania because Churchill knew that if something like the Lusitania went down, the Americans would get involved in World War One, and... Without the Americans getting involved in World War One, England was not sure that they could win. So it looks, it looks 
really bad for Churchill in this, but it's just, I've been thinking about World War I and all the different things that went into it, and sure, it's absolutely plausible, especially a year before World War II when tensions are beginning to run high again. It makes sense that, you know, an author as esteemed and intelligent as Agatha Christie might set up. And she um, does have a personal connection to the region as well. Her husband was an archaeologist in there, so she 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 has more than a run-of-the-mill knowledge. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of her books takes place is a murder at an archaeology dig, I think. Ah, oh, and apparently I she wrote a notice. book on Syria. Mm-hmm. When I was listening yesterday, it really jumped to the forefront how much um, these kind of profiles of dish, different nationalities seem to be so emphasized in the conversations between Poirot and Constantine and Book. They, it seems they're really preoccupied about that. But, uh, but even a, sorry, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. I was going to say <laughs> this is a reasonable account of why of what's going on in the narrative that would make them highlight these different nationalities so much. And but that's and that's true also just within all the other um, passengers as well. Like they're, they're dry, speaking the same way. Yeah. The 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 detective, I mean Poirot, Book, and Constantine are certainly drawing conclusions. Um, and, and interpreting evidence, you know, through a lens of that, that looks at each of those people according to their nationality, mm. but also mm. the characters and their prejudices. You know, this 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 second part in particular was consumed with the way all these different characters thought about each other and looked at each other. Yes. Um, or didn't look at each other. <clears throat> but so, I, I'm a, this this whole idea, like I'm kind of torn because and and then Laura. This is great research, but so I don't want to throw shade on Laura. But this is classic David that I walked in this morning really excited about this, and he was like, eh, this is classic David. Okay, so I like it, but this is my, like, it's like when people talk about how Lord of the Rings is an an allegory for World War II, like my my sensors go off, um, because I don't think that's how we should be reading it. Oh, I completely agree. So, like, my hesitation is, let's avoid reading... Murder on the Orient Express as like some allegory for World War One, so much as maybe and like she's taking themes that are surrounding her mm-hmm. and and ideas that she can't she can't help avoid. Excuse me, and and creating a story out of that. She's she's looking at the world around her and she's interpreting it within the context of her story, which is what great artists do, right? It's what it's what F. Scott Fitzgerald does in The Great Gatsby, and it's what Homer does in the in the Iliad, right? Uh, or Shakespeare does in Henry V. By the way. St. Crispin's Day today. That's right. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. friend of brothers. We should have had Tim do a performance of the Crispin's oh, Day speech. Yes. Right now from memory go. No. Um, <laughs> Tim, maybe you should pull that up. And before we go today, we'll have you do that when we sign off. Um, and then we can say that we can say we band of close reads brothers and sisters, mostly sisters. Um, so uh, I, I, I want to like, I think it's really interesting to, to think about it that way and understand the book that way and understand what she's doing that way. But I also hesitate or I want, I, I don't know. I don't even hesitate. I insist that like we, she, I'm guessing she was not creating an allegory. And I, don't, I don't know. Well, I mean, I right. didn't read, I didn't read Laura's comment as allegorical. No, and I'm not um, saying that. I'm just saying, I think that's when you see these things, people often have a tendency to right. say, well, then this means this, what's our one-to-one correlation. Right. Oh, definitely. And that's a great way to and, ruin a book. You know, I'm not for that at all. I'm not for the Pilgrim's Progress way to read at all. Um, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's blasphemy as much. And I love allegory, but that, that what you're describing, that one-on-one thing, that is actually, that's not allegory. That's, 
that's something else. But anyway. right, but that's how I'm just saying that's how that's, we do it. No, I agree. That's I agree. Because it makes it easy, right? No, absolutely. And we're always looking for the key to the puzzle, like Flannery O'Connor says. We always want you know the secret code, and, and it's all going to unravel for us. But that's not right. how books are. But at the very least, we get a lot of motivation of why there's suspicion of foreigners. Right. It, that's and, a great. That's the great word there. I think motivation. Like, what is motivating these characters to to act the way they are? Part of it is that there's the stuff on the surface, which I think is what Laura is drawing attention to. As readers, it's not on the surface, but it's on the, on the surface of their world. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And then there's the stuff that's behind, wrapped up in the mystery. And this helps so me a, to understand why Mrs. Hubbard keeps saying this was supposed to be the safe trip. This was supposed to be the easy way to huh. travel through this very huh. unstable mm. region, mm. right? This is why she's so concerned about... Her personal safety, which to us, it just makes her sound like a paranoid old lady. But I mean, if you're traveling alone, a woman in the middle of a war-torn Eastern Europe, yeah, you can be nervous. And Tim, I think what makes a great mystery or spy novel or whatever work is that there's two levels of of, um, intrigue going on. There's the stuff within the world, like if you're reading a Cold War mystery, a spy novel, there's the stuff within the world that is informing the way characters act the way they do. It's a yeah, motivation for characters in general, for the that sets the tone for the world. And then there's the drama within the specific elements of the mystery itself. And mm-hmm. those having those two things converge is what makes uh, a mystery story successful. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. I I'm, I pulled up uh, Laura's comments. The last paragraph: This train with its cargo of suspects forms a microcosm of the fragile peace in Europe, the uneasy balance between West and East. Please note, close readers, that these cities still figure in our headlines today. Mm-hmm. What responsibility do we bear the other passengers on our present train? That's a great, that's a great closing quote or closing question. And to your point, David, it's, it's, yeah, it's operating. The story that we're reading is operating on two levels. It is a, yeah, the, uh, the close reads Facebook group has been, much more, um, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say useful. That sounds, that's <laughs> the wrong They're finally word. useful, is <laughs> no, no, what no. David's saying. They're finally <laughs> carrying there. The whole point of this show was that we wanted people to research for us. That was the entire motivation. <laughs> we needed help. No, the, the grip has been so much more... Actively Part- engaged, yeah, participatory, like partis- fruitful, and I don't know all yeah. the different words you want. I to think use. it's awesome because I read yeah. these comments and I think these people are reading close. Yeah, and then they're you know they're bringing all this stuff, and I felt a little ashamed that I wasn't the one talking about the World War One connection. It also, <laughs> I was shamed. You shamed me, Laura, but in a good way. <laughs> it also shows that there's at least six people listening. Thank goodness. So, yes, there's at least more people listening than the than the number of people on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that was 2017 our... goal accomplished <laughs> um hey tim as you you'd never read this before right correct it's but a... i had seen the movie but i had right, seen okay. the 74 movie have you gotten past have you have you gone further than part one yes Did further finish... than part two you mean yeah yeah sorry yeah yeah i have have you finished the whole thing no okay so um, when you at, let's just uh, let's just assume we're going through part two. Has your um, sense of Poirot as a character changed at all? Hmm. Yes. 
his he's temperamentally I don't I don't think he's terribly different than what I imagined him to be. <laughs> but um his capacity has deepened. You know, it's he is figuring out. He knows. I've gotten to the point where he basically knows, although the reader does not. He knows who has done the deed. Um. So his, I mean, you go into reading the book and you know the detective is great at what he does. He wouldn't be a famous detective if he wasn't great at what he does. Um, but you're, I'm starting to see now his greatness, and I hadn't seen it in the first part. I just want to say something before I forget um, when we were talking about last week the form of the detective novel and that I thought that Agatha Christie is really, really drawing attention to it and is, is going to say something about the form. Like, I think that's one of the things she's doing. Um, uh, I, I forgot I'm, I forgot to mention, it's funny too, in my middle school class, I literally said, you always start with the front matter of the book. The front matter matters, right? I was, t- <laughs> And then I skipped the front matter in this book. <laughs> <laughs> So I am my I, I I am my own worst student in this episode apparently. But if we look at the front matter, which is the table of contents, we pay attention to the structure of the book and we can see how much she's drawing attention. This is not typical of an Agatha Christie novel that she's calling it part 1 the facts, part 2 the evidence, part 3 Hercule Poirot sits and thinks. I mean, this is mm. this is exactly how a detective story plods forward. And but she's drawing our attention to it. And I liked in this section too how it said, well normally we have um, all kinds of resources that we don't have available now. We have police to go check on people's alibis. And, and a lot of a detective story is footwork. And we saw that in Murder Must Advertise, right? You got to go out. You got you to gotta track people down. You got to interview them. You got to double check alibis. You go with the police. You run background checks on people. They don't have any access to that. So this is purely going to be mental. He's going to mentally solve the puzzle. But there's going to be, you know, there's not going to be fingerprints or DNA or, you know, there's not going to be anything like right. that. And and he even talks about how we don't have to go track down the suspects. They're going to come to me one by one. So it's like this super exaggerated, um, organized, orderly, you know, he's sitting there with a checklist and bring in the next one and then and right after each other. So it's very fa- fast. Um, and, and, so I guess it's like almost uh, intensified in that it's shortened because we we don't usually we interview one person and then we kind of follow their their plot line a little bit and find out more about who they are and their backstory and kind of meanders around and then that kind of fizzles out and then you you chase the next lead, but this is all really really shortened and therefore intensified. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, it it is an interesting structure. Part one, crime. Mm-hmm. Part two, gather evidence. Part three, think. Like the part is even part three is even called Hercule Poirot sits down and thinks. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, so we're not what, gonna what's going to happen in part three, guys? I'm pretty sure there's not going to be a chase scene <laughs> like Hercule Poirot on top of the moving train, <laughs> running after the killer. <laughs> well, I don't remember that being. <laughs> He's kind of a big guy. I don't see that happening. Also, his mustache might get yeah, tossed, might, tossed about. Yeah, it, exactly. It might get curled <laughs> the wrong way. <clears throat> Tim, if you could grow a mustache like that. Would you grow? <laughs> Although no, maybe you can grow a mustache no, I would like not. that. I, don't know. I probably could. I don't think I will. As a you know, courtesy some, to all of my friends and family, I will I'm not. just going to say this at the, ris- uh, at, the, at the risk of insulting hipsters, which I am not trying to insult at all because I love me a good hipster. But 
Having said that, somebody on the Facebook page was making the comment that Kenneth Branagh, who's going to be playing Hercule Poirot, that his mustache in, in the film is really, really exaggerated. And I thought, well, that that's because there's so many hipster mustaches that look no. like he's going to have to just exaggerate it, don't you think? He did an interview about it. Oh, tell me. Of course, David knows the backstory of the mustache. Let right. me hear it. So this is really interesting. Um, oh, that's My wife just texted me. <laughs> And so I respond. Yes, I'm looking over at a completely <laughs> blank face David saying that's interesting while he's texting so in his phone. This is closer, easy, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I'm close reading my wife's text. A so, as a good husband should. So um, she texts me. It's about books, actually. She texted me where to find a recipe because she's make, trying to make soup for the kids who are sick. And I texted her that big cookbook back, and I meant to finish it by telling her the, who wrote it, because I couldn't remember the title of it. And she just wrote me back like, that big cookbook, what do you mean? They're all big. <laughs> um, Worst instructions ever. It's in the big book. We have 40 book. cookbooks. They're all probably 400 pages or more, well, most of them. So anyway, so he, he got asked about this. He's like, why is this mustache so outrageous? And he says, well, in, in the series of books, not in this one, but in one of the books, she says that it was the largest mustache in England. Oh, oh really? wow. And she hated the mustaches and all of the other versions on stage and screen. Because she wants it to be exaggerated? They were not big enough for her. They weren't curly enough. They weren't thick enough. There were not enough layers to it. Wow. So he went, he, in reading about what she thought of the other versions of Hercule Poirot, like she did not like Alfred, what, oh no, Finney, was it? Um, Alfred Finney, yeah. yeah. Albert, Albert, Albert Finney. Finney. Um, she was like, those were just little wisps. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, we're going to do it right. So they did the biggest, most, like, it, so it would, you'd think, okay, that, yeah, that could be the biggest mustache in England. Um, Is it, it meant to be almost comical? Well, he, it, I think so. I think that's the way she viewed it. And, and it's, and it's meant that he, he's vain, right? Yeah. And so it, he likes to be recognized. You see that in this book, right? Oh, Where, yes. Like, he, he is taking account of how people respond when his name is said. Because they don't come in the room and he's like, hello, I'm Hercule Poirot. We're going to talk. He, like, is very dramatic about it, right? I presume you know who I am, madame. Yeah, or, or like, they'll talk and then they'll be like, who are you? And he's like, wait, he's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I'm um, going to start introducing myself like that. Gonna, <laughs> at conferences, I'm going to stand up and be like, I presume you all know who I am. <laughs> So anyway, so the, the mustache is part of that vanity, right? Like the, he has to have the biggest, most grand mustache. Mm -hmm. And he's very careful. He is like, like we, as you said last time, he's got yes. like tools his curling for his tongs. So um, Kenneth Branagh spent almost a year trying to grow a mustache. And, and in the end, they didn't like how it turned out. So they shaved it off and it's the, um, like a stick on. Oh, it's a prosthetic, it's like, a prosthetic mustache. Yeah, they like made it a special one that was like fit what they wanted to do because he tried to grow it and like they couldn't get it to look right. For months and months, so then he wasted months and months of upper lip growth. What a man will do for his art. Let's I know, I know. Take one for the team, right there, Ken. Exactly. <laughs> but that, but it really does. I mean, that goes. It, it gets no, right into the character. No, it totally it's under, fits it's a, into that. It's a good reading of of the character, and also, you know, and kind that of that he takes himself so seriously, but is also a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim, do you think that that? Is he like you and that he takes himself seriously but knows <laughs> and is willing to Wait, buy I didn't, into that? I didn't catch the second part of that he takes himself seriously and but knows he's ridiculous. <laughs> or I is, think he is or like is that. he like is he does he take himself seriously but doesn't doesn't recognize his own ridiculousness? I think he is very self aware. I think he takes himself seriously and he knows he's a little bit 
It, do you say that? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to track with you. Do you say that based on like his comments of my little quirks, my little originalities? You know, his little, like he's drawing attention to I know I got some weird stuff. <laughs> Is that what makes you think that? Yeah, and his maintenance of his mustache. That's also a, a, an evidence. His maintenance. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe that would be evidence that he's terribly vain. I'm not sure well, he, he thinks is vain. himself. I don't know that I think he's ridiculous. So, okay. Let's, let's, that it, he thinks he's ridiculous. How I'm self-aware sorry. is Hercule Poirot? He is obviously self-aware to the degree that he understands that he is good at what he does. Right. right. But I, isn't that sort of what we do in these kinds of characters? Like he can see everyone but himself. He's, so that's what I'm asking. Is that would you? Is that how you read it? I yeah, I was actually surprised that to hear Tim say that he knows he's ridiculous because I I think he doesn't know. I think he'd be well, deeply let me back offended up. Let me back if up. someone said you're ridiculous. I think he'd be super offended. I don't think that he's actually ridiculous. So I think that he knows ah. that he's a little bit um, odd. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So he's not. So you. So you both agree that he's not. He ridiculous. knows he's eccentric, but I think yeah. he likes that about himself. He. Do you think? Okay. How much of it do you think is natural, and how much do you think is played up for 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 a character? So, because he's playing a character. That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like I'd need to read a bunch of these in a row. I've never done that. I mean, she's got what? How many novels does she have? There's sixty something Hercule Poirot novels or something, right? Forty something. It's a lot, and I have never read all of them, much less read them in order to see the development of the character. So, I really don't know. I I, th- I don't I don't know either. Um, so Hercule Poirot, she wrote um, thirty three novels, one play, and fifty more than fifty short stories between nineteen twenty and nineteen seventy five. Wow! According to the Wikipedia. Well. Prolific. Only the finest research here for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we, David had his crackerjack research staff running around. <laughs> Yeah. From now on, can we have Kirsty just sitting in the desk right there while we do it, and then I can just like <laughs> nod to her, like at a baseball game when you got you need stats. Yeah. Wait, what's this guy's? We need a statistician. You know, yeah. In the fourth inning, when he's two outs, uh, and it's a raining on a Thursday. Tell me what his average is, <laughs> quick. Coming up I now in the David... bottom of the third inning, Hercule Poirot with the bases loaded. It's a little dust in his mustache. He's calling timeout. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the reason that I think that. Hercule Poirot is self-aware is because how could you ever actually solve a crime without being aware of kind of like all of the different impulses and passions that might lead you to, you know, want to chase one potential suspect over all the others, which is exactly what Book and Constantine, well, especially Book does when he's consult when he's consulting with Poirot. Poirot will interview someone and that person will leave the room and book will say they're, they're guilty clearly they're guilty and or his hang up sh- with the italian his mm-hmm. prejudice leads him to just yeah right right and i would think that poirot has to be self-aware enough i mean, surely those sorts of inclinations impact our detective but he's self-aware enough that he waits he bides his time he continues to inspect so you think he can compart- compartmentalize well, his own instincts. I think I think he's aware of his instincts. He has to be self-aware of his instincts in a way that, like, Book is just so not self-aware. I do hmm. think it's interesting that he yeah. knows he's being played. <clears throat> Go on. What do you mean? 
Well, by the murderer, by the murderer. Right. So like when he says, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to find the woman's robe in a man's suitcase. I'm going to find the man's outfit in a in a in a woman's suitcase. And it's going to be this woman, uh, the Swedish. Mm-hmm. And, and if said, we find it in there, we know she's, she's not. It. Yeah, because book says, oh, so you think she's it. Oh, on the contrary, I know she's not. And <laughs> that's why we're going. So, again, all of that is drawing attention to the form and the way that the detective novelist thinks. But also, I think he knows because he says there are too many coincidences. There are too many clues. Like He knows that somebody's trying to deliberately take him. In, a, in the wrong direction. And then, of course, he when... He knows the pipe cleaner and the handkerchief were plants. And he... Well, he's trying to sort through what are the real clues and what are the fake clues. Right, right. And he, of course, the part two ends by him recognizing there's a game kind of going on. Exactly. Uh, he says, ah, defiance. Yes. And that was awesome, by the way, that they hit the robe in his suitcase. That was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, that was. That was fantastic. I like that. It's a dope move. <laughs> As the dope move. It's a baller move. It's a baller right yeah, that what exactly. they say i don't know we should probably not try not to talk like our students um <laughs> i'm being relatable david oh yeah good so all of the high school kids who are listening are like oh i love angelina now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's 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 why you should love you me. guys can i can i tell you something that happened in my online class on monday and i don't know our listeners tell properly... me they love a good tim story so go ahead okay this <laughs> I don't know that without the visual that you could recognize just how glorious a moment I had in my class on, on Monday. This sounds so amazing. The background is I was speaking in Colorado Springs for Searcy, and I was staying with some friends of mine who all remain nameless. And their daughter is in my takes my online class. Okay. That's the setup. Monday morning, we start class. And before we start class, I say to the daughter, I'll just use her name so it doesn't get too confusing, Sophia. I was like, Sophia, we should have fun with the rest of the students today because I'm going to be, you know, over in one room. You're going to be in another room. We'll only be separated by about like, you know, like 50 yards. And they don't know that we're in the same place. So let's have a little fun with them. She's like, okay, great. So, (laughs) so we start class and you know like we're kind of just starting up and i'm like hey you guys by the way speaking of current events did you know that you know google has come out with this new app and this new app you know like everybody has wanted to be able to email like actual stuff not just text and pictures but like email a pencil and google has finally figured it out and i downloaded the app yesterday (laughs) and they're like what and I said, yeah, it's it's a Google app. And one of the students is like, what's the name of the app? Like, I want to get it right to do it now. Really exactly. Oh, no, let's do, do that too. And, and I said, in uh, class, that person had was going to have seven pencils. Right, exactly. <laughs> He's going to like email a Coke to his friend or something like that. So I said, yeah, it's called like Google Material or something like that. But I downloaded it. <laughs> None of you guys have heard of this. And Sophia now, who is, of so course, in on the joke. You're Willy Wonka at this point, right? You guys- <laughs> yeah, somebody else mentioned Willy Wonka. <laughs> Sophia says, oh, yeah, I heard about this app, too. I downloaded it last night also. And I was like, wait, are you serious? Sophia, let's try it. Let me try to, like, I'm going to try to email myself to you. <laughs> and you're she says. TV. And she's like, oh, that's great. So, like, the online class. Everyone can see everybody else, <laughs> so, right? And it's kind of a Brady Bunch sort of setup on this yes. app, Zoom. Yes. 
we're all looking at each other and I'm like, okay, let's try it. And so I'm like acting like I'm pressing stuff on my phone. I'm crying right now, just so you know. Sophia is acting like she's so pressing sweet. stuff on her phone. <laughs> and then I turn my camera off, so I disappear and all the students are like, wait a second. Wait, where did he, where did he go? And Sophia is like, you can, you can see her in the lower right corner. She's tripping. She's laughing so hard because she knows what's about to happen. So I run downstairs. I run down the hallway and I like poise just outside of Sophia's camera frame. And then I leap into the camera frame with my phone. And you guys, <laughs> you should have seen my students. Like one of them one of my students got so freaked out that they all saw me leap in and they're like, oh, wait, what? What? And they all start freaking out. One of my students got so freaked out that he like closed his camera. I think because he was afraid that I might like teleport myself into his living room. It was it's the best four minutes. I literally am afraid that if we just like separate the four minutes and put it online that it will go I, I i think people will go bonkers for it oh my gosh you have to you have to i know i really want to but i think we need to get permission from all of the parties <laughs> included before we do that thing oh my gosh i've watched it 15 times and every time i watch it i i i can barely contain myself but well, you at least need to send it to us now yes okay I i'll send it, it. To, i'll send it to you i'll send it <laughs> we'll just tell the people on Facebook how cool it is. Oh my goodness! I, if I get permission, maybe we can post it on Close Reads because <laughs> oh, that's I think crazy. people will get a real kick out of it. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, oh. sorry, sorry to sorry to interrupt, but I think that was a worthwhile interlude. Murder on the Orient Express is sort of like a tertiary subject of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so tertiary, so third. It's third. Yeah, not even second. Not even second. What? Here's okay. something else I thought was cool about the book. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I segue? Please. Can I, can I interrupt you, Tim, and talk about a favorite book I'm reading? Please. I'm reading this book right now. That's really cool. You might have heard of it, Murder on the Road Express. <laughs> I think a movie's coming out. Let's talk about it. If, if, you, if we have a few minutes, I wouldn't yeah, mind I think, talking about it. Go ahead. We, um, we can carve out a little bit of time. <laughs> so, um, obviously, we've got suspicion on uh, Ms. Debenham and uh, Colonel Arbuthnot. Uh, which I thought was so interesting uh, in the way that Book says, oh, well, they must be in it together. And Hercule Poirot says, no, because, again, studying the psychology of these things, if they were in it together, she would be his alibi and he would be her alibi. But that is not what we have here. So, again, so so many interesting things. And um, he, of course, is convinced it's a premeditated murder and not an act of passion, which is why he he doesn't— which, he doesn't and, buy the Italian. Yeah, and Book and uh, Constantine are keep bringing it up. And he's like, I, just, why can't you understand? A passionate woman did this to this man yeah. who is both left-handed and right-handed <laughs> and strong and weak. Well, I mean, ambidextrous. <laughs> like all women. <laughs> all women are ambidextrous? No, we are strong and weak and left and right-handed. Oh. We like to keep you off balance. You I ever did, figured that out? I didn't out? know this about Things, women. oh, that was secret. Edit uh, that out. Yeah. Edit that out. <laughs> Logan, get rid of it. Yeah, who can't let that one out. Um, Tim, what were you gonna say? Oh, nothing, nothing. I was just listening. I Poirot is. I, I love that we keep coming back to this. Will be a psychological solution. I mean, sure, he's gathering facts, he's gathering evidence, but his inclination towards psychology, I think, 
is oh yeah he's ruled he out several people, people just based yeah. on they don't have the psychology to have committed this crime but De so mrs debenham but he's fascinated with miss debenham because as far as he's concerned she's the one person in this whole group who has the psychology to have pulled off something like this something cold and calculating and premeditated mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what i find interesting is that nobody here has even poirot has come out and said none of are these people who they are portraying themselves to be? Like there's been no suspicion of maybe, maybe the Italian is playing up the role or the American is playing up the role of this. Well, I American think, I or... think uh book suggests, how do we know Hardman is who he says he is. And Poirot says, well, because it's too easy to disprove him once we get somewhere else. Right. I don't mean, I guess I don't mean, I guess I don't mean that oh, they're presenting... Oh, you don't mean an, an actual false identity. Right, yeah, or... Oh, or they might be showing the wrong psychology. Right, yes. Yeah, like that, that Poirot hasn't even, uh. that hasn't even come up in conversation. And maybe it's just not that kind of book, and she, she, Agatha Christie didn't need to introduce every idea or every kind of... Well, I think suspicion. we see a little bit of that in, in the way that he talks to Miss Debenham, because he does not give her a straight-up interrogation. He tries to trick her. He, he's looking for an emotional response, and he gets one because she... She gives a very bad answer when he says, are, are you scared? Because Miss Hubbard is losing her mind that she's next door mm -hmm. to it and that there's a murderer on here, right? She's scared, rightly so. Anyone would be scared. And so he says, you know, are you concerned about this? And she says, no, why would I be? And then he says, oh, crime is an everyday affair for you or something like that. It's just all in a day's work. I think that's how he puts it. He says, no, of course not. And then, of course, she also says the odd thing. In response to, do you have a, or a red dressing gown? She says, no, that's not mine. And he leans forward like he's pouncing yeah. like a cat. It says he's finally got something he can kind of sink his teeth into. So, but, of course, that's where, as someone who, if you read mystery novels a lot, you're like, okay, so maybe our suspicion, maybe we are most suspicious as readers, being in Poirot's head of Mary. Mm -hmm. But then there's something always like in your head is going ding, 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 like, Eh, too obvious you know like the yeah, obvious right. one is really the one who actually did it that's right and there's something else going on so the layers of the suspicion are really interesting because you've got the suspicion that the the the, the passengers have for each other and then Constantine and Book have their kind of suspicions. And then Poirot has his suspicions, but he's not really telling us who they are yet. And then as readers, we have our own suspicions based on the evidence and then how we interpret them as individuals. Each mm -hmm. of us will have our own people that we're like sort of suspicious of. But then also the the um, genre itself leads us to believe certain things and all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And that's where you you can... A good mystery writer, even when they're kind of subverting the themes, is still relying on the form. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which, and that's, you know, you, a good mystery story never completely tosses the, the form out the window. Oh, and I don't think she's tossing it. No, I, I don't know. She's drawing attention yeah. to it for her, for her own purposes. And, and I wasn't story, saying that that's yeah. what you were saying. I mean, right, Because you right. can still, you can take the themes and turn them upside down or the common tropes, but you still have to rely on, on the form or at least yes, uh, we... turn to the form to create your, your relationship as an author between the author and the book and then your audience. Yes. I think that we can trust the form enough to know that one of the suspects is the killer and logic was going to figure this out. It's not going to be a deus ex machina, right? He's not going to find a hidden diary where someone confessed to themselves in a moment of pain. It's not going to be like that, right? Um, the facts are, are, are in front of us. But I also think it's interesting because we talked last time about procedural dramas versus a true detective story. And one of the things that's true about a procedural is that is, you know, CSI would always say, I follow the evidence because people say, well, why? Well, that's leading you to this person. That person couldn't have done it. And the answer is always, I don't ask those questions. I just follow the evidence. 
And here we have the reverse of that. Poirot's psychology is telling him something's off with Miss Debenham. But everyone else is pointing out, but the evidence is not there. And he admits the evidence is not there. And that's what's puzzling so much. Because if she did it, then this, this, and this should also be true. And that's not true. So there's no evidence to support it. But yet he won't give up because he's so convinced about the psychology thing. Mm -hmm. So that's just an interesting kind of twist on storytelling that we see. Tim, do you remember how the, the movie ended? Yes, I do. Do you mean, do I remember the solution? Yeah, so you remember who the yes. criminal yes. was? Uh-huh. Okay, never mind then. <laughs> Were you going to ask me who I suspected? Yes, I do too, so we all have to be so careful about what we say. Well, can I say who I suspected when I was watching the movie? Would that help? Yeah. Well, like while that you were would, watching would, it? Yeah. Don't that would spoil eliminate... it that Hercule Poirot is actually the killer in a sleepwalking yeah. film. Don't spoil it, Tim. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say anything because if I say something, that will eliminate that person from consideration oh that's true that's true oh very wise sneaky <laughs> monsieur mcintosh you twirl your mustache so well <laughs> you should write mystery stories david do you remember who you suspected when you were reading it for the first time Ooh, i don't remember who i suspected oh me either I'd have been that's a, a great question yeah do you do you guys find that you when reading a mystery story or or a story that is about solving a crime or something like that that you tend to sus be suspicious of a certain kind of character and maybe like have maybe some grace towards characters or other kinds of characters so in other words when you're reading stories is there like a a an archetypal character or something that you tend to think oh, just instinctively, oh, that's the person that did it. Like then, the butler? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I guess. Or but I'm thinking more like the psychology of characters. And then is there like a character where are you sympathetic to characters that on the surface seem like they ones that are the ones that should have done it? And I'm asking more about this, your own psychology as readers, I suppose. Like if you're self-aware enough to even recognize this. I don't know if I am. Are we so, sympathetic enough to... Well, let me put it this way. So you're let's say you're reading a story that takes that's a murder in... Um, some some rich dude gets murdered and then they bring in Sherlock Holmes or something to solve the crime and you yeah. go through all these different characters and trying to figure out who it is. Is there a specific character, type of character that, you know, like, are you going to be, are you instinctively led to be suspicious of the butler or the pretty girl from the countryside or the, you know, the unrequited love or, or... Okay, yeah. So I would say in those situations, if there's a woman who has been mistreated who's a suspect, I'm usually pretty sympathetic to that. Like, yeah, stab yeah. him again. Are you suspicious? <laughs> like, would you be suspicious of uh, her? No, because I would think that's the, that's the too obvious quick solution. Okay. What about you, Tim? Like, do you tend to feel like the the obvious, like, do you instinctively say the obvious ones are just not it? Like, so would it be easy to trick you by by making making it the obvious person in the end? <laughs> It probably would be easy to trick me if it was an ob the obvious person because I tend to say the obvious person is not it. We have a detective story of 250 pages. <laughs> it has to be someone who's not obvious. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. that's one thing. You know, in, in real life criminal investigations, they say that murder is actually the easiest crime to solve. And it's because it's an act of passion. It's not premeditated. It's usually pretty obvious who is the person in this life that would get you know, angry enough. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's someone close to them, someone who's not going to clean up after the crime. So there's usually lots of physical evidence. So I don't, we don't see that kind of stuff typically in a detective story though. 
That's one of the reasons he's, he's pointing out there's not going to be fingerprints on the knife. There's not going to be fingerprints on the window. In other words, this was not a careless moment of passion. All this is a premeditated crime. Now, premeditated crime in which you cannot easily uh, link the perpetrator and the victim are almost impossible to solve. Because there's no physical evidence. There's no motive. So... Mm-hmm. I think that's why we end up seeing those stories, because those are the puzzles. Those are the hard ones. And, and that's what's so interesting is about in, in, in this story is all of the suspects are trapped. <laughs> so even knowing it has to be someone, there is a connection here between someone and the victim. Whereas in a, in a different scenario, you wouldn't necessarily know that. If you, just ha- found, if you just found his dead body in London somewhere, you wouldn't know where to look. Which is, I mean, you know, but again, they draw attention to that. Uh, the, the secretary says, well, I know that I'm the suspect, so let's clear me out. And then somebody says, oh, it can't be you. You're too obvious. And, and then the same thing with the princess. Don't you suspect me? She says, I loved Sonia Armstrong. And, and he says, that's precisely why I don't suspect you. Mm-hmm. It's too obviously you. Mm-hmm. It, in some ways, I kept thinking, man, it feels like he's drawing the conclusion that it's not someone too quickly. Wow, well, maybe he is. Maybe that's part of the form that Christie is... Uh, playing with a few people have suggested that they don't think he's uh necessarily a few people have suggested on the page that he's a little hasty that poirot is a little hasty yeah in the conclusions he's drawing about people well to this point he uh, certainly is confident in his ability to oh, he's very confident to reason his way through this and and that his conclusions and his understanding of psychology in particular are accurate and Although this section did end with something he did not predict. He was right that the robe was going to be in a man's suitcase, but he did not guess it was going to be his own suitcase. And that it not only surprised him, it pleased him. It was this kind of Uh Sherlock Holmes, all the game is a foot moment. Like, oh, oh, all right, check. I see what you did there. Okay, nice move. That was a a little bit of respect, I thought. Yeah, right. He's a worthwhile adversary. Yeah, exactly. Like, ah, this is, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's so confident that even when something happens that he did not predict, he's not ruffled by it. He, he needs right. Moriarty. Yes. That, no, yeah, that's exactly. exactly right. He, he liked it. I read that in very, you know, wink in the eye. He liked it. He was excited about that. David, it might be fun to have the close readers post on the Facebook page who they think because we're going into section three to post who they think did it and maybe a sentence about why. Yeah, let's do that. So if you, if you're on the Facebook group, then um, I'll, I'll post a thread. I'll just post a comment. We can do, people can leave comments responding. And it's going to say who done did it. (laughs) Exactly. Who do you, who y'all think done did it? And um, no spoilers, just in keeping with where we are right now. And, um, what we will do then is, yeah, if you've already read it, don't, or if you already know who did it, don't respond. If you don't remember, if you've read it but don't remember, then you can respond. But just go based on your suspicions. Uh, I still think it's a clear case of suicide. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. All right. So, what do you guys think about uh, a, a, a handful of people, maybe like four or five people, have uh, been uncomfortable with how quickly uh, Hercule Poirot concluded that Ratchet was Cassetti. Now, for me as a reader, I had I, that was not a leap for me and I had no problem. But what, what about you guys? There are s- several people who just thought, oh, no, no, that's he finds a piece of paper that says Daisy Armstrong and now he knows who this is. They, they weren't buying it. What, what do you think about that? I think that this, I, th- I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to 
I think we're supposed to feel like that was the clue combined with his other mm -hmm. knowledge of the case. Um, and that he was already suspicious of Ratchet ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And I also think that maybe he was drawing conclusion, drawing that conclusion and presenting it and then trying to see if people, how people responded to it. Uh, by saying this man is Cassetti. Yeah. Uh, like, was there anybody who's like, nah, or like some of the characters just were very like, oh, yeah, now that you mention it. You know, so that's that that's part of that's part of my thinking on that. So he might be using it to play a game, and he maybe he had a he had a hunch that he was that he was playing to see if anybody was like, oh no 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 or whatever, or if um if if the secretary or the valet were able to uh, point him in some other direction, like or like shoot that down, they'd be maybe some of them perhaps the most likely they'd be able to say, oh he wasn't there at that time or or anything like that. You know, that's my guess. But also. You know, you can only you have to present things in a mystery story in a somewhat efficient way. So mm -hmm. there are some limitations to the, and to the, the fact storytelling that of the setting. You know, if this was in a different setting, he would go to a newspaper office and look it up. There'd be that scene, but you can't have right. that here. So yeah. I think I think we just have to I, I, go with. His. I felt that, like I felt in the moment of rereading it, like oh, oh that did seems you feel fast, it was abrupt. Oh. But that's why I started thinking, well, maybe that's part of the deal. Like that's purposeful. What about you, Tim? It did not strike me as abrupt at all. I, I thought that he was, it sounds like what you're saying, David, confirming, it merely confirmed a deep hunch that he had. Do you, um, you're listening to it, right, as you drive? Correct. So who's the, which audio version? Are you doing the Dan Stevens one or the David Suchet version? Uh, Dan Stevens. I think it's Dan Stevens. Um, Dan Stevens is good. The guy who does the voices is just terrific. I'll, I'll look it up. It's on my phone. I'll look it up. The Dan Stevens one, he, you know, that's the guy from Downton Abbey. What role is he in Downton Abbey? Matthew. Matthew. The husband. The, co the cousin. The cousin. The blonde dude. The veteran of uh, World War One. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, so that's that's a. Um, I'm listening. I've got a couple audio books by him. I've got the first James Bond book. He reads that. Casino Royale, and he's really good, and he's done a couple other number of other things. And there's like twenty five or thirty audiobooks of his on on Audible. It is Dan Stevens. So I'm wondering if is he doing a French accent for uh, Hercule Poirot, or how's that how's that work? Is he just it's, doing an English accent for everything? No, he well, he does. No, it's it's good French. It is kind of a French accent. It's it's muted with Poirot, and it yeah, it's very good. It's not it's not overly muted is he exaggerating the american accents like she is in here <laughs> he's yeah he sounds the um the detective sounds straight up texas just a big texas boy well well i reckon well they did speak in a different way in america in the early 1900s yeah there was a they had a reputation for you know if you've listened to old audio recordings there was a different way of speaking we've kind of just in the last hundred years let our speaking just kind of fall into decline <laughs> it's really funny if you can get an english person to imitate an american accent i it delights me to no end because it's it does not sound at all what i think we sound like but of course to a brit it just sounds like all of the vowels are as big as a 
you know, the Caspian Sea. They're just. Did either of you ever watch the uh, the the um, Jeeves and Worcester um, TV series with Hugh Laurie? Yeah. And- yeah. No. Okay, so it's Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry, and they're they're Jeeves and Worcester, and they act out quite a few of the Woodhouse stories. It's a fantastic series. But the reason I mention it is because whenever they do have an American character on the show, it hurts my ears. Like it sounds, I just think, oh, that's the worst American accent I've ever heard. And it's probably like a real American, but it just I don't I don't know what happens in those moments. Is I just. Well, you, we, you settle into the British. You se- is that what happens? You settle into the British dialogue, and then you hear the American. Am I hearing what the American accent sounds like to a British person? We'll in have that to moment? ask a professional. Yeah, because it sounds awful. But then even this, the, there's some stories where Bertie goes to America. Mm-hmm. So in those stories, he's the only one with the British accent, and every American on the show sounds fake to me. Maybe they're British people talking in. So America. either they're British actors with bad American accents, or something wonky happens to my ear when Americans are portrayed on a British TV show. <laughs> I've heard other people say that too, though, so I don't know. Hmm. Trying to think of the crown, and the crown, does the president come, and is there any American characters? But maybe, are they doing the older American accent in the Worcester ones? Is that why it sounds Could weird? I don't, know. I don't know. Anyway, um, well, well, this is a hard podcast because we're right on the cusp of solving the crime. We, and we are. Can't say I'm so about excited to find out what happens and how he's going to unravel this. I wanted to clap. That was so well played with the robe. Yeah, it was. Well, let's let's uh, we've gone over an hour. Let's start to uh, wrap things up. Let's get some final thoughts, and then Tim, we got to do. We're, we're going to announce. Don't 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 go away after this break. We're going to okay. announce the next book that we're going to do, and Tim's going to do a reading of Crispin's Day speech. Unless Tim. Oh can't. my gosh. Okay. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean. I I know that speech moderately well, but you know, like part of the thing about being. It's like asking a violin player to just, you know, just go ahead and like fiddle it out for us. You know, you have to like understand the words pretty well. You have you, to understand you the can say no, well. Tim. Stand I'm, up for I'm just kidding. You, I, I was just, you know, trying to give a reason for people to come back after the quote break. But yeah, we will do the, uh, we'll do a, uh, let's get final thoughts and then we're going to announce the next book. Um, so I'll go with you, Tim. You first. What are your final thoughts on on part two as we lead into the the, the crime solving part three. Where I, I will say, rem, remembering when I was watching the movie, I had a couple of people that I suspected, but I really had genuinely the, not the faintest clue. And I suspect that first time readers are in the same place. Like, who did this thing? The end. <laughs> <laughs> now he's going to email himself to one lucky close reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's gonna show up and not they'll not want to listen to it yet, so they'll be so confused. <laughs> Email there's an app for this? Do it during dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All of a sudden Tim's sitting there eating pot roast with you. Yeah. Hope you like pot roast, Tim. Hello, close reader. <laughs> Is that pad tie? Um Angelina, final thoughts. Uh I'm just super impressed at what a master Christie is because I do remember the ending and I'm thinking, man, I, I, I know the ending and I can't see how this is going to be unraveled. It, it is extremely well done. And her touch is very subtle um, in terms of what the real clues are. And the other thing is that 
I'm a great lover of form. That's one of the things that gets me most excited about a book. And so I'm, I'm just delighted to see her drawing attention to all the things that I say are in a detective novel and, <laughs> and kind of playing with it and exaggerating it. And just, I just love that. I feel like they're looking at the camera and being like, nope, can't be her because it's too much obvious. Or her alibi would be such and such. I, just, I love it. I love it. We, and it's always fun to see it unravel, I guess, or... Or ravel. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, knot will unravel. See things these see things come together and like the puzzle be that's the better metaphor, the, the puzzle pieces be fit fitted together. That's just that this the, one one of the best things about a good mystery story is the satisfaction that comes with finishing it. Not just the that you figured out who did it and so you stay up all night reading under your covers with a flashlight, but the the satisfaction of not, uh, not just knowing who the, the the solution, but the way that it's done. Yeah, the whole experience of it. Otherwise, we'd all just read at the back of the book and see it, right? Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. Oh, so you read this, you read the beginning, and then you read the end. But what's satisfying about it is the experience, the process, the journey of of you know being with the detective. And we know he's got a worthy adversary, so the, yeah. st- the stakes are high here. Perfect, I like it. The perfect crime. It definitely looks like the perfect crime. All right, well, let's let's talk about the next book. Ooh, I'm excited. So when I mentioned it to Angelina, she's like, wait, we talked about that? I swear y'all are making this up. I have no memory of this Tim, we've talked about this, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the book Tatum is. Tatum dreamed that he told the two of us what the Angelina, next book is. Angelina was in the doorway to my office and we talked about it. She just doesn't remember it. No memory. Um, so Graham made my coffee. Who knows what was in it? I remember nothing. <laughs> it being... Um, We'll be finishing the next book around Christmas time, uh, given that we'll be starting this next book in mid-November. Uh, given that we have not done a Shakespeare play in a long time, I thought, let's do Twelfth Night. We did talk about this. Okay, good. So that's what I'm thinking. Let's do Twelfth Night. We'll do an episode on each act. There'll be lots of great time to read things together, to, per- quote, perform it together, to let Tim talk about staging and all those kind of things. And then, of course, Twelfth Night is a good, you know, good, if not... Um, stereotypical book to read right through the Christmas season. Um, it's a good comedy. And Angeline, you've never read that one, right? I have right? never read it. Twelfth Night is definitely one of my favorites. Tim, have you read it? I have. Do you like it? Um, I do like it. It's not it's not my favorite, but I do like it. It's it's a very very good play. And there's a good movie of it from 1999, which we can tie into a conversation as well. So, have you seen the movie? I have not seen I've seen a movie. It was a full uncut version. I think it was done probably in the eighties, like one of those BBC okay. tele- made for television. There's movies. a good one with Patrick Stewart and Helena Bonham Carter and a bunch of people that was Ooh. Yeah, I think yeah, I think ninety nine. So um David, you know what might be I, I have a conviction about Shakespeare. I think maybe we've talked about this on the air before. My conviction is Shakespeare's not meant to be read. I mean he was meant to be read by his actors. Shakespeare's meant to be performed. I wonder if we could all watch um, the same production because that would give us not just the play to talk about, not just the text to talk about, but also the performances. If that's not, if you don't want to go in that direction, I totally get it, but no, I'm good with that. I mean, I would say if like, I would say, let's all watch, let's watch the movie. Yeah. Um, I'd love that. And then let's, uh, um, and then let's, let's talk one act at a time. There's five acts in the play. So let's, let's discuss one act each week. Um, and we'll maybe, maybe what we need to do is pick out a couple of scenes that we can read together and discuss how they yeah. are important yeah. in that act. And then we can talk about how they're interpreted within the performance in the movie. 
I love that. I think there's a good structure for us there. Cause you can't talk about every scene in a Shakespeare, you know, in an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. So yeah. if we choose one or two scenes that are key to each act and then read some of the parts together and then discuss, um, the, the performance in the movie, like I think I think that's, like I said, I think that's a good structure for us to, to go forth with. So are we agreed then? Agreed. Angelina? I'm in. All right. That way we're not just doing all, quote, modern novels and we can, you know, maybe Matt Bianco will actually listen. I mean, he'll skip the banter, <laughs> but. Um, uh, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to do this one. I'm, I'm all happy to read a new book. So, okay. So Twelfth Night, we'll begin that after we do our movie uh, tie-in episode of, of uh, Murder on the Orient Express. So Which mid, I'm so excited because because we're going to see a movie. My daughter is actually reading the book. No, oh, nice. Yeah, she took the copy I gave She you. did. She took <laughs> she took the official close reads copy from me when I got home and said, Oh, I'm gonna read this book. She didn't want to read it if I wrote notes in it. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening, of course, and and certainly thanks to all the patrons who have been contributing on Patreon. Um, the the we'll do more polls up there. All of Angelina and Tim's past conference talks that have been edited so far are available there. So if you are patreon of any level you can go over there and subscribe you can use the little link there to add it to your podcast app if you want to do that so when we post new ones they'll show up there and i heard tim's latest talk from last weekend was dynamite you don't want to miss that dynamite huh dynamite strong word that was the exact it's phrase an explosive Dino-mite. word no might dynamite dynamite well congratulations on the dynamite talk of that talk already to a dozen people it's like in a high request you've done you've done what i i've had i've had a dozen people ask me for the text of that thing and i've already no 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 tim you tell them the way to get that talk is to become a sponsor (laughs) of this show two dollars a month (laughs) (laughs) well i figured the people who had just heard it it's not going to be the only i mean they've they've already heard it so yeah fair enough but if they want to own it forever and ever (laughs) that's true yeah that's true they need to become a sponsor (laughs) So don't forget to subscribe. If you have not subscribed to just the Close Reads feed, please do that uh, because eventually you're not going to be able to get this very often on just the Cersei Podcast Network feed. Not sure when, but eventually that's going to happen. So please subscribe on the Close Reads feed on whatever podcast app you you use. Um, And don't forget that coming up soon, we are going to have a season two of The Commons by Brian Phillips is coming up. And he's going to be doing 10 episodes over 10 straight weeks, beginning with November 1st, which is All Saints Day. Oh, nice. And each episode is going to be covering um, one key figure, or maybe on occasion two, but key figures within church history. So the first episode is going to be an interview that he conducted with Wes Callahan about John Chrysostom. He's going to talk about the Cappadocian Fathers. He's going to talk about the Puritans. He's going to talk about uh, the Reformation a bit. He's going to talk about Augustine. He's going to talk about um, uh, hymnody in the church history, all kinds of great things over those 10 weeks. So 10 consecutive weeks starting November 1st. Um, So that's going to be season two of that. Then coming up in the spring, um, we are going to be uh, bringing you a show by Matt Bianco, which is called The Divided Line, and that is going to be where Matt does 10 episodes explore, and they're, they're all going to be exploring Plato. So as he writes his dissertation on Plato, he's going to be interviewing different people uh, along with his research, people like David Hicks, uh, professors at St. John's College, all different you know, scholars and experts and things like that as they uh, as they kind of work their way through 10 episodes on Plato. So that's called The Divided Line. That's coming up this spring. And then uh, soon we're going to be bringing back the Ask Andrew podcast. Those are going to be um, 
Andrew Kern responding or answering questions on basically it's kind of kind of going to kind of be a definitions show. So what are the seven liberal arts? Um, things like that, where he takes 10 minutes to to respond quickly to um, questions about key definitions in classical education. So there's lots of great content coming. Of course, you can listen to Forma, the interview podcast that we do. Uh, last week, we interviewed Adam Andrews on the, his article about The Great Gatsby. So uh, there's just tons of really good content coming out and already available to you. So um, thanks for listening as you have been and be sure to be on the lookout for those things. I guess that is it though. So Tim, Angelina, any final words for our for our listeners out there? That's nope. me. Can't wait to see who did it. All right. And why and how? For Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, thanks so much uh, for listening to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.